We love our babies. We love our families. We grieve with those who grieve. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And so today uh, we celebrate this new life and even life that has graduated to heaven. And so we uh, look, look to the hope that Jesus alone provides for us. It's a hope that does not disappoint. And so we give thanks. <clears throat> Welcome to week number 30 of the story. I trust that you have been keeping up with your reading today. We want to talk about the final days of the Apostle Paul, one of the great icons of the faith, of course. He wrote more than half of the New Testament. He was the one who took the gospel in such a powerful way into the known world of the first century. And so we want to uh, rehearse his life and the model that he provides for us. Next week, we come to the end of time. It is the last chapter of the story. We will go through the, we will go through the book of Revelation in about 35 minutes. You don't want to miss that. I'm anxious to hear what I have to say about that myself. So that'll be next week. So today I want to help us focus on one primary thought. As we discover the Apostle Paul's present life, the last of his days on the earth, was always affected by his future. Let me put this statement on the screen, see if you agree with it. Future expectations determine present behavior. Do you agree with that? Future expectations determine present behavior. What you believe about the future affects how you're living today. I believe that. The Apostle Paul lived his life in the light of the future with eternity in view. We find in the Gospels the life of Jesus himself was lived with eternity in view, always pointing toward that kingdom which is to come. And so the question for us today is very simply, do you live with eternity in mind? I've discovered in my own life, I don't know if this is a product of my, my current age or just perspective in general, but I have discovered the last few years of my life very intentionally with the things that I am doing, the decisions I am making, the strategic plans that I'm engaging, always I find myself thinking of those choices, those moments, those decisions in the context of what I want to remember about this day, this moment, this choice, a hundred years from now? What do I want to remember about these days in a hundred years? I think that's a good practice, a good exercise, a good idea to imagine the effect of the choices I make, the way I live today, and how it reverberates a hundred years from now. I want you to think about that. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 8, and 9. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. You know, knocked down, but not knocked out. So Paul was about 30 years old when he came to faith. This was approximately 35 AD, 35 years after Jesus. For the next 10 years of his life, we don't know his whereabouts or his activities. We're not sure what he was up to. 
we do know that he spent three years in Arabia. And then around 45 AD, Paul, who is now approximately 40 years old, begins to take the gospel to the known Roman Empire. And from 45 AD to about 66 AD, which is when we believe the apostle Paul was martyred, he was killed in Rome, he took the gospel on three different missionary journeys into Asia Minor. He went as far as Spain, then back to Rome where he was executed. In Paul's life, he traveled approximately 7,000 miles on foot, horseback, by boat, taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving love of God, to the ends of the world, known world. He wrote about half the books of the New Testament. As I mentioned, 13 of the 27 New Testament books are under his authorship. And by volume, it's much more than half of the New Testament. What is perhaps the most remarkable part of Paul's story is the amount of suffering that he experienced for Jesus' sake. From 45 AD to 66, that's 21 years. So from 40 years old approximately to 61 or 62 years old when he died, in those 20 plus years, he suffered. He actually listed some of those aspects of suffering. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 and following, five times he said, I received the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and night in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. Danger from rivers, bandits, fellow Jews, Gentiles, in the city, in the country, danger at sea, danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled, gone without sleep, without hunger, without thirst. I have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And then finally, summarizing, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weakness? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Wow, what a list. You can combine the accounts in the book of Acts. Paul was probably shipwrecked as many as 20 times. Apparently, the boats were not as reliable back in the day. He mentions being hungry, cold, persecuted, imprisoned, beaten, stoned, left for dead. This guy, living in the present moment of his life, suffering for Jesus' sake for over two decades. Here's a question for us. What in the world kept that boy going? What kept him going? I mean... If I got pelted with stones, maybe once I might give up. How about you? 40 lashes minus one? Thanks. That's, that's dramatic. That's a, that's a lot of suffering, unimaginable suffering. So what was it that kept him going? This is my appeal to us this morning. There are two thoughts that I want to give you, just two. And, and this is how I want to try to model for you the Apostle Paul's motivation in life and perhaps can become a model for our own. And the first thing that kept him going was a promised future with Jesus. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 13 and 14. Paul writes, it is written, I believed, therefore I've spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Now note what, what words he uses in verse 13, faith and believe and, sp and speaking what we believe and have faith in. All of these expressions motivated by the promise then that we find in verse 14. 
where he says, I'm living, believing, speaking, motivated by what is coming in my future and in the future of all who believe. There is an eternal life in store for all of us who believe and have faith, and this is the faith to which we speak, and, and we maintain our hope. So the question for us is, are you living with that same eternal view? No matter what you're going through in the present, you know that God will raise you up in the future. Are you living that way, with that view, with that perspective? Paul's belief was based on the promise that Jesus made. Here's what Jesus said, John 3, 13. He said, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus said, I'm the one guy who came from heaven and returned to heaven. I know the way. I know the route. I know the course from here to there. Been there, done that. You can trust me. I'll, I'll bring you to myself. This is, a, this is a wonderful hope, wonderful message. We now live in a world, as you know, of great division, contention, uh, animosity, violence, vitriol, especially around political issues and political positions. A recent Gallup survey found that 81% of Americans said they believed in God. 81% say they believe in God. That's, that's a good, good number, isn't it? That's encouraging. 81% of Americans believe in God. Gallup also found that only 47% of Americans actually belong to a church or to a synagogue or a mosque, which is down from 70% just 23 years ago in 1999. Now think about that. We have 81% of Americans who believe in God, but they have compartmentalized the practice of their faith in any meaningful way. You know, hanging out with other believers, attending worship services, being part of a, a fellowship of folks who have the same values and convictions in the world. Down from 70%, only 47% of people in America now actually practicing their faith. It may be more accurate to say many Americans have separated God from their religion. So there's been this bifurcation of our faith in God and the way we practice our faith, this compartmentalization, this division. What is going on? We have people who believe in God, but only 47% of us actually practice that faith. I think what's happening is that people have separated God from their religious practices and then replaced religion with politics. Religion in us, you know, God says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has put eternity in our hearts. There's a God-shaped hole in every one of us. We, we are hardwired to have a relationship with God. I think it affects our sense of purpose in life. It affects our primary passions in life. It should affect all of our practices in life. Our convictions based on our relationship with God should inform every dimension of our life. And yet what's happening to us, and this is a, this is a, a complex rationale for why it's happening, uh, which is for another time, but it is happening that somehow people who have a faith in God are separating that faith from the way they live their lives and actually replacing that religious practice with political interests. Listen to this other survey. This is a recent survey. Millions of Americans surveyed. 80% of Americans now are convinced that their political opponents will destroy America. 
80% of Americans believe their political opposites will destroy America. And 72% of us also believe that whatever side you take politically, that your side is losing. So everyone on both sides, millions and millions of Americans, believe that the opposite political perspective is going to destroy the country. And 72% of us believe the other side is winning. So millions on both sides of the political divide must believe that they must do whatever it takes to, quote, save the nation. So on one hand, you have a political party in America saying, if you don't vote for our candidates, you know, on Tuesday, during the midterms, it's the end of democracy. You have people on the other side saying, if you don't vote for our candidates on Tuesday, it's the end of the nation. All of this hyperbole, this animosity, this violence, even against political leaders and their families, which is becoming epidemic in our culture. I, I am convinced that it's simply a misplacement of our primary purpose and passions and practices. And we see it in these surveys where people who believe in God are, are leaving the practical functionality of their faith and I think replacing it with political activity. And politics, listen, politics will not cover the wide variety and dimension of our lives. It's a, it's, a, it's a very small plate, and you try to pile everything associated with your life onto that plate, it starts spilling over. I mean, after all, there, there, are, the, there are the arts, there's nature, there's family, there's friendships, there's your faith. None of that stuff fits on a political plate. So let me summarize with this statement. Politics cannot heal our nation. Politics cannot heal our nation. But living in the light of eternity can. So you say, well, should should we just not be involved in politics? That's not what I'm saying. Uh, We live in a representative republic. We live, we live in an amazing place called the United States of America. The United States is, is, the, is the, greatest governing, the, the greatest governance structure that human beings have ever come up with. The United States of America is the greatest nation that has ever existed in the history of humanity. Anyone who, anyone who argues against that is a fool. There's not a close second in human history. All you have to do is take a cursory look at history and discover that having the legal right to cast a vote for who represents you in your government is a gift of God that so rarely happens authentically in the world that it should, it, it's, it, we should stop and just go, thank God for this gift. It's an amazing opportunity and privilege. The greatest country in all of human history. We all hit the lotto when we were born in this country. That's a fact. This, we ought to be thankful. And so when it comes to being a responsible, mature Christian person in the context of a representative democracy like we have, then the opportunity to, to vote should be taken advantage of every time. So failing to vote on Tuesday is irresponsible. In my worldview, it's actually sinful. I mean, it's just saying to God, I don't care about this gift of yours that has come to me. That's what grown-ups do. 
So plan to vote if you haven't already. Beth and I have already voted. We voted early. We feel very strong about that. And so you you should feel some responsibility. And I encourage you to do so. I hope you will. Again, politics can't heal our nation. But living in the light of eternity can. That's the point I'm trying to make today. I hope you'll hear it. Back to John 3 when Jesus said, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. I know the way back and forth, and I'm taking you with me. And that's hopeful. That'll keep us going. So I have three questions for you today. I'll put these on the screen for you. What do you believe about your future? Who or what is the source of that belief? And is that source trustworthy? I mean, there are people within the sound of my voice today who believe when they die, they cease to exist. That's it. Life is all there is when it's over, it's over. There's no heaven, there's no hell. Life ends, that's it. Here's my question. What is the source of that belief, if that's what you believe? Did your Aunt Aunt Mildred tell you that at some point? Your sixth grade teacher? Who, Who suggested that? And is that source trustworthy? There are people who say, I believe the future cannot be known. I'm an agnostic, and I suspect there's a God, but there's no way to know for sure. You cannot know the future. Well, who told you you can't know the future? Are they a reliable source of this kind of information? Are they trustworthy? Perhaps you believe in reincarnation. This is a philosophy that suggests that you live multiple lives. You live one life, you didn't quite get it right, so you're reborn into another form and you live that life and you may have to go for hundreds or thousands of lives over and over again until you figure out how to get it right and then you've reached, uh, you've reached your perfection. Well, what's the source of that belief? And is it trustworthy? Maybe you believe when you die, you'll spend eternity floating on a cloud having sprouted wings and strumming on a harp. That's how you spend eternity. What is your source, please? Is it trustworthy? Well, Hallmark gift cards have those pictures on them all the time. They must be, must be true. Paul said, my future is connected to Jesus. He was raised, and because he was raised from the dead, so will I be raised from the dead. That's what kept him going. That's what got him up. That's what allowed him to endure all of the suffering that he had to endure. That's what motivated him. This sense of the future. Perhaps you know that on our world People are fascinated with the thoughts of the afterlife. Major publishers are cashing in on people who have claimed and experienced in the afterlife to return to the earth to tell their stories. New York Times bestseller list over the past several years has had at least one or two books on the bestseller list that pertain to life after death. Religious people, non-religious people are reading these books. People are interested in the subject, very interested. One of these books in recent years is entitled Heaven is for Real written by a pastor whose four-year-old son had a near-death experience, went to heaven, came back to share his experience. It has sold millions of copies. It stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for 44 weeks. Amazing. There's another book entitled Proof of Heaven, written by a Harvard neurosurgeon who was in a coma for seven days. While he was in the coma, he claims that there was an angelic being called Orb, O-R-B, who guided him into the deepest realm of existence to meet Om, O-M, God, and then came back to share his his journey. 
He says to all of his readers, I quote, there's nothing to fear at death because we are all going to heaven and it's a beautiful place. Here's a question. Does this guy know what he's talking about? Is he trustworthy? Virtually all of these books suggest that a part of us goes on living after our physical bodies have died. Many of these accounts do not line up with scripture and then therefore make me a bit suspicious of them. Now, I imagine it's possible to get a glimpse of heaven and then return to tell about it. However, I generally find myself initially skeptical regarding most of the accounts that you read about. I'm not suggesting insincerity in the witnesses. Probably they are sincere. I just find them incongruent with scripture. For example, I follow along in agreement with heaven is for real until the little boy, four years old, who's returned from this experience, and he tells me God has blonde hair and blue, blue eyes. I doubt it. Maybe so. I reserve the right to be wrong. I doubt it. For example, when the guy writing the proof of heaven says everyone goes to heaven, it's in direct conflict with the words of Jesus, who is my primary and ultimate source for such things. Everyone's going to heaven. Here's the problem that I have with that. Jesus, as recorded in the Gospels, this, this is a truth that I have mentioned from time to time in my, my ministry career. It's always met with mixed reviews. In fact, there are three separate occasions in my life when I've mentioned this fact I'm about to share with you, and I've been castigated for it. I mean, folks all up in my face. But the truth is, you know, the facts hurt sometimes, I guess. They're troubling, those facts. The fact is that the recorded words in Jesus and the Gospels of the New Testament record Jesus having more to say about divine retribution and punishment and the place called hell than the place called heaven and where you'll dwell with Jesus forever in paradise. So apparently Jesus was concerned that we get the message that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. It's important to him. He said a lot about it. He said more about hell than he did about heaven. I know that's just, that may be shocking, but we should, we should gain the perspective from that and gain wisdom as well. So what was it that kept the apostle Paul going? It was the promised future with Jesus. And I submit to you that that's the same thing that will keep, keep us going. Let me just move to the second point that I want to try to convince you of today. And the second thing that kept the Apostle Paul going was the promise of reaching more people for God's glory. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. He said, all this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. So do you see his perspective there? This is for your benefit so that more and more people causing thanksgiving and glory to God. Here's what we know from the teaching of the scripture, that every tribe, every people, every language, every nation will be represented in heaven. That's the ultimate diversity, inclusion, and equity. Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Missions as a, as a practice in the world, taking the gospel and making disciples of all of the peoples of the earth, that mission still exists in our world because worship doesn't exist among all the peoples of the world. There are still people groups in our world who have yet to hear the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a big deal. 
This is a serious mandate. This is not a suggestion that came, comes from Jesus. This is, this is the great commission. So therefore, every Christian, that's you and me, and every local church, that's us, and every Christian ministry should be intentionally and strategically involved in fulfilling this holy mandate, this great commission. That's where an amen goes in the sermon. Too late. <laughs> Some weeks ago now, I was preaching the story from the, from the life of Solomon. Solomon, as you recall, was the third king of Israel. He was the son of David. And, and he came to power after the death of his father. He was maybe 19, 20, 21 years old. And he knew immediately he was in over his head. In 1 Kings chapter 3, we have this account where, where Solomon, this young and new king, he goes to prayer. And he calls on Almighty God. And he says, basically, he said, God, you are great. You are Almighty God. You have raised up this great nation they are, they are powerful and influential in the world, and you've called me to lead, but I'm in over my head. I don't have what I need to lead this great people for a great God. And so would you please give me a discerning heart that I might be a good leader? When God heard this prayer, he was very pleased with Solomon. He said, look, he said, I'm really happy that you prayed what you did. You didn't ask for money, wealth, power, status, victory over your enemies, long life. None of those things did you ask for. But instead, you asked for wisdom, a discerning heart to lead. And God was so moved by the prayer that he said, I'm not only going to give you a discerning heart, I'm going to give you all the other stuff too. There's never going to be anyone like you. And that's an amazing answer to prayer. And I was alone in my house. No one else was in the house. There was, it was completely quiet. I was, I was preparing the message and I had an experience with God. I, I shared this with you those weeks ago. And as God spoke to Solomon and said, ask me whatever you want, I'll give it to you. It was as if God was saying the same thing to me. Ask me whatever you want, Greg. Ask me whatever you want, I'll give it to you. What do you want? Are you processing the question right now? Imagine, almighty God, who can write the check on your request. What would you ask for? I paused for a few moments, and then I gave my answer. I told you this story up to this point some weeks ago. And I, ask, I gave you an invitation to ask me, feel free, just on a personal basis, to ask me what I requested. And in the intervening weeks, three people have inquired. And I get it. You know, you're busy. Life happens. Get distracted. You don't remember this. I mean, 70% of you aren't even listening to what I'm saying right now. So <laughs> lower expectations. <laughs> Thank you, all eight people that laughed. See, I mean, I overestimated the 70%. But here we are. What would you ask for? I can tell you what I ask for. I ask for souls. 
You can have anything you want. What do you want? You name it. I'll deliver it. I said, I want souls. I want souls. It's as if God suddenly from that moment has begun to turbocharge, you know, supercharge the whole activity of the life of our church and the impact of our church. We've baptized 164 people so far this year. We'll baptize more people next weekend. At 1130, there's an interest meeting in baptism. If you want to know more about what it means to be baptized in water, just go over to the chapel, just right, right through, the, through the doorways in that direction. And there will be people there to help. The number of churches that we're planting, we're going to talk more about this in the next few weeks, is increasing, multiplying, exponentially growing. It's amazing. Last week, Robin Wood, our director of church planting, was in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Tim Kraft is our church planter there. He started a, started a church among recovering drug addicts. Tim is a, a recovering heroin addict himself. This is a, a church now that's grown to 200 people. They have a Sunday morning service and a Sunday night service. Their Sunday night service is bigger. We don't know what, what it means. But everybody that shows up at this church, you know, they've got piercings and tattoos and missing teeth, and they bring their children and their families, and they're, they're in recovery. This is recovery culture. The whole church is full of people in recovery. And last Sunday night, Robin Wood preached there, and Tim Kraft baptized 28 people in a, in a Sunday night service. He's baptizing people in an old horse tank. It's phenomenal. It's amazing. It's a move of God. He, he grabbed this kid. He's probably 25 years old, sitting in the water there. We, we've seen the video this week. He looked at this kid, looked him in the eye. He said, state your full name in a strong voice. This kid, <laughs> this kid said his full name. And the kid's been in hell. He's been in hell. In a clear voice, he states his full name. Tim Kraft grabs him. He said, I baptize you in the name of the Father who loves you and the Son who died for you and the Spirit who lives in you. He dunked that kid and 200 people go crazy. Because there's hope when you follow Jesus. This stuff matters. This is where life is found. This is the essence of it. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and following. Paul says, therefore... We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Paul would say, yeah, it's true. My body's decaying. Yeah, it's true. I've suffered abuse over the years. I, I've, I get up a lot slower than I used to. I don't move as fast. I have this residual pain from all the floggings and beatings and stoning, but I'm being renewed. Day by day, and my struggles are producing an eternal weight of glory 
That, isn't that beautiful? Let me just remind us all this morning. We're all sucking air and getting old. Every last one of us. You may not have had a heart attack yet, or a stroke yet, or your arthritis has flared up, not recently, but it will. We're all decaying. Here's a fact. It took every one of us longer to get ready this morning for church than it did just a week ago to look as good as you did last week. (laughs) Have you looked in the mirror? It's not going well. We're all trending the wrong direction. The question is, are you being renewed? Our momentary light afflictions are producing a glorious outcome. For Paul, his afflictions were neither momentary nor light. We've already rehearsed those afflictions. He's placing them in the contrast to what is coming. Compared to what is coming, he's living with eternity in view, and that really matters. That'll keep us going. That'll cause us to endure. When you live with eternity in view, let me just remind you of a couple of things. One is you're more able emotionally to deal with whatever happens. This is a big deal. You have health problems, family problems, career, business problems. You wish it didn't happen to you. If you you only had a view of the here and the now, you'll respond emotionally one way. But if you have a long-range view of the life to come and put it in that context changes everything with the way you're dealing with your current crisis. With turmoil, conflict, pain, suffering, grief, despair, the old adage is true, this too will pass. If you're going through hell right now, keep moving. Keep moving. Just don't stop. Keep going. You'll pop through the other side. You'll be out of that. The best is yet to come, somebody said. The Apostle Paul chose to interpret all of the miserable stuff that had happened to him in the light of eternity. It helped him cope emotionally with it all. So if you want to be a healthy person on balance emotionally, then you have to place all of your pain in the hope of eternity, in the hope of a better tomorrow. It's good preaching right here. It's really good. You're not letting on like it is, but (laughs) when I'm really preaching well, my nose runs. That's how I know. So when you live with eternity in view, it, it helps you emotionally to cope with the, with the here and now. And the second thing it does is it will help you maximize your moments. Paul wanted to maximize every moment of his life for Jesus' sake. Paul preached the gospel to mayors, to governors, to scholars, to average citizens. If Paul was in prison, he shared the gospel with the guards in the prison. He would write what became known as the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are all letters that Paul wrote while he was in some godforsaken prison. You know, this guy's going, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. That's from a prison cell. <laughs> Who is this guy? <laughs> it's amazing. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.17 again. He said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving. You see the word achieving? The troubles are achieving. The troubles are the things actually God is using to build in us an eternal weight of glory. It's an amazing promise. Listen, maybe you volunteer with children or youth. Maybe you practice the gift of giving. You're very generous. We have lots of people like that. 
Maybe you're retired and you're engaging meaningful kingdom purposes in your retirement years. Good for you. Or maybe you've become careless in your spiritual life. Maybe you're one of these people in America who's compartmentalized your belief in God with how you're actually living your life. Maybe you've gotten sloppy, unattentive. You've lost your focus. You've started coasting to the finish or coasting through the season that you're going through right now. If that's your story today, then let me just give you some counsel. And just a reminder, they they don't let me in the counseling center here on our campus. They don't trust me with counseling. But let me give you a, a word of advice. You stop it. Stop it. Stop what you're doing or not doing. Stop being a careless person, an uncaring person, and refocus your purpose. Re-energize your passions and re-engage the practices that you know God has called you to that lead to honorable living and the glorification of God so that more and more people will come to this saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, keep heaven in view because that's the hope that we have that all of us have. You can plan for retirement, but you don't live for retirement. You'll live for Jesus all the way to the end, all the way to the finish. Glory to God. Did you get it? Did you get it? You got it. Good. Let's pause and pray. Lord, we want to make a commitment to you today. As we reflect on what kept the Apostle Paul going, Lord, we reflect on our own lives. He lived with eternity in view. God, help us to live that way. The best is yet to come. There is hope. Jesus has paved the way for us to an eternal life. Thank you that he's taking us with him. Praise God. And Lord, we know the apostle kept going to reach as many people as he could. Go to heaven, take as many people with us as we can. More and more to the glory of God. Lord, encourage, inspire in us the model that the Apostle Paul sets for us. Thank you for his life. Thank you for this witness. And thank you for this word, which allows us to take the next steps in your direction for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us?